If you don't know me, if I haven't had the, the, the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Jeremy. I'm the student minister here at EBC. Glad to have you all here with us this morning uh, for worship. And I want to ask you a question. Uh, have you ever uh, attempted to give up something that was just really difficult, it was really hard, and you knew even going into it that it was going to be really hard for you to give it up? It might be like a soft drink. It might be, you know, fast food. It might be social media, something like that. So for me here recently, I, I decided that I was going to be done with snacking once I put the, well, I say I, like I do it, like when Lacey and I put the boys to bed, that I was going to stop going straight back to the pantry and chowing down on some trail mix or whatever my hand could, could find, that I was going to go brush my teeth right away because don't nobody want to eat trail mix with minty breath, and that that was going to be what, what stopped me. I, I, and I'll tell you, um, that lasted one whole night. I did it exactly once. And so the question is, why? Like, why is it so hard when we know, like, I want to give this thing up, this habit of mine, I want to give it up. Why is it so hard for us to just do it? Well, you know why. It's because of our desires. This thing that I do, you know, soft drink, waffle fries, social media, no one's holding a gun to my head and making me do it. I do it because I like it. I enjoy it. It gives me some measure of happiness. And so that's why none of us are going to be able to say, and well, maybe you could, but just using it as an example, a sweet. I can't just say, I'm done. I'm done cold turkey. I am done with that. We've all tried that with something. We've tried and we've given up because we've tried to white knuckle it. We've tried to do it by sheer willpower and failed. And habit wins. But we all have also, right, had times where we've decided we were going to give something up and we've had success. We did it, we crossed the finish line. But how did that happen? Well, it was, wasn't it because you realized that there was something else that would make you happier? You know, you would be healthier. That would make you happier than Dr. Pepper. And so you gave up Dr. Pepper. You would be less anxious. And so you gave up Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But did you stop there? Did you just give the thing up because, well, I know that this will make me happier? No. You filled that gap with something else, right? I drank more water to fill the gap of the Dr. Pepper. I read a good book to fill the gap of Facebook or, or what have you. And there you go. The habit was kicked. You did it. Good job, everybody. And we saw last week that a Christ-centered life requires action. You have to do something. And over the course of the letter to this point, Paul has laid out many of the somethings uh, all along the way. We've seen that the Christ-centered life is characterized by Christ-empowered love. And Christ-empowered love, we saw, is love that is applied with knowledge and discernment. The Christ-centered life is one that's marked by radical self-denial. It places gospel advance above self-interest. A Christ-centered life works towards unity within the church. It contains an ample dose 
of humility. And it counts the interest of others as more significant than my own. But we've also seen that all of this, all that we've talked about, all that Paul has written about, is the fruit of God's work in his people. It's the evidence that he's actually working in you and I, right? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one who begins a good work in you. He's the one who brings it to completion. It's not a product of my will or your will, but of God who works to the glory of his name. And so what we're going to see this morning is that the work of God doesn't just impact what we do. It impacts uh, our attitudes as well. So look with me. Our text for the morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. And they say this. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Without grumbling, or yours might say disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning to sing songs of praise to you, to pray to you, both as individuals and as a church family, to get to read your word together, to talk about what it says and matters and means. We thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, we acknowledge that it's your word. You work through your word for the good of your people in your people. And so we pray and ask that you would do that today. Open our eyes to what is true. Open our eyes to our own sin. Bring us to repentance that we may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, praising Christ all the day long for our salvation. Amen. So you could boil this text down, I think, to two instructions, two imperatives, two commands, however you want to say it. One is in the negative. It's a, it's a do not command. The other is in the positive. Do this. And so, if you are of the note-taking persuasion, the first point is this. Do not grumble and dispute. Do not grumble and dispute. Now, I'm sure that we've all, at some point, read one of Paul's letters and thought to ourselves, can't you just say it? Like, why do you have to use all the words and the commas and have sentences that are yay long. Just, just say it. And we take peace, we find peace, because like Michael mentioned a few weeks ago, in another book in the Bible, Peter, the Apostle Peter, who preached the first sermon at Pentecost, spokesman of the Apostles, says, yeah, some of the things that Paul says in his letters are difficult and hard to understand. So we know that we're in good company. 
And we understand this. We look at the, Paul's letters and we say, layman's terms, Paul, layman's terms, just tell me. Well, here you go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Perhaps you'd like for him to go back to uh, being a little bit more difficult to understand. This doesn't get more straightforward. What instruction does Paul have here for the Philippians? Stop grumbling and disputing. Okay, but what does that mean for me? Stop grumbling and disputing. But when? All times. In all things. Okay? So you mean like, yes. Yes, then. Okay? Well, what about, yes. What does all things actually mean, though? Does, what could it mean? It means all things. But what if I'm really frustrated by my job? What about my boss? What about when my boss is rude or he gives me this project that's time-consuming, it's tedious, it's boring, I've got other more important things to do, and he's given me this? Does that mean that I can't go complain at my friend's desk about that? Yeah. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, but you don't know my neighbor. They're really hard to get along with. I can't talk to them. They're always snappy, their yard's a mess, their little yappy dog barks all night long. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, but me and this other person, we don't see eye to eye on this political issue. And it's a big one, it's a big deal. They said some things that I don't like, I really don't like at all. So can't I just say what needs to be said in order to set them straight? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, but, but I'm always volunteering to serve in the church, and other people aren't. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. But the kids in the worship service, they get kind of loud sometimes. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. But I don't understand how they can come to believe that doctrine. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The initial what in this text, it's just not hard to figure out. What does Paul intend for his audience to do? You can probably say it with me. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Good job, y'all actually did it. I didn't know if y'all would. That actually worked. What's most important for us here is it's the why. Why does Paul say this to the Philippians? Well, he lays all that out in verses 15 to 16. Look again. He says, That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Grumbling and disputing is inconsistent with a Christ-centered life. And when we stop and think about Christ himself, that should be abundantly clear to us. This is Christ our Lord, true God from true God. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, 
the eternal word by whom and for whom all things were made. God the Son, who having taken on the likeness of men, suffered for man. He received the full force of God's righteous and just wrath in the place of his people for their sin. And perhaps it would be helpful. What is sin? It's rejecting and ignoring God in the world that he has made. It's not being or doing what he requires in his law. Well, who does that describe? All of humanity, us. Who does it not describe in any way? Christ. He didn't deserve the wrath of God, and yet he suffered as if he had rejected and ignored God. And he did so without complaining. He did so without disputing. We've already sung a new song, a beautiful song, about his persistence in the garden. And there in the garden, what did he say? Not as I will, but as you will. He stood before Caiaphas and Pilate without making a defense for himself. While hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. In all of this, he fulfills what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 53, 7. We read it earlier. Let's read it again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus endured the greatest suffering ever known and that could ever be known this side of eternity without grumbling or disputing. What does that mean for the people in whom he lives? Grumbling will be working its way out of our mouths, too. Paul's concern here centers on the distinctness with which the people of God are to be living. He says to not grumble and dispute so that you may be blameless and innocent. Now, when he says this, we know that he isn't saying that this is how you merit God's grace, how you earn his good pleasure, his favor. Paul's point here to them, it's like he's saying, be what God has already declared you to be in Christ. His people are blameless in Christ. We are innocent in Christ. We are without blemish in Christ, having been cleansed and forgiven of all of our sin. We have been adopted as children of God in Christ. It's necessary to see the whole of the Christian life as becoming who we are, uh, what we are declared to be in Christ. That's what sanctification is. Growing into the holiness and righteousness of Christ, which covers you by faith. And that's Paul's exhortation here to the Philippians. Be who you are in Christ, who he has declared you to be. Even so, we still haven't fully answered the why question. We're halfway there. But why still is he exhorting them to this? It's his desire for them to present a compelling witness 
to the gospel in the place in time in which they live. Philippians, he says, if you read it this way, Philippians, by doing all things without grumbling and disputing, you just look different. This type of attitude shows what is already true in Christ, that the church has been set apart by him. And that's why Paul can and does refer to the Philippians as lights in the world, which of course, if we, when we see that, I bet we go, oh, I've heard that before. It's because it echoes the very words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus says about his own disciples, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, if you want to go back and look at that later. Here, Jesus makes clear what it looks like for his people to, to be set apart. Living out the righteous character of Christ, it, it shines against the backdrop of a dark world. The, the Christian attitude will look totally different because it is being remade in the image of Christ. It's being remade to look like Christ. It's being remade like Christ's. The Christ-centered life is about testifying to who he is. It's about holding him out as worthy of devotion. And what Paul is saying here, it's very similar to what we read in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, where Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea here is don't give the pagans ammunition to wield against you. May the only thing that they're able to charge you with be conduct that is actually honoring to the Lord, that is pleasing to the Lord. But there's actually more here that connects these two passages than, than, than just that. Peter and Paul each make references to the nation of Israel and the church, but they're going to do it in, in two ways that are, that are a little bit different. So Peter if we were to just back up just a couple of verses from what we read uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he cites from Exodus chapter 19, from, and from a couple of other places, but uh, Exodus 19 is, is prominent there. And what he does is he, he takes the Lord's words describing Israel, and he applies them to the church. Israel, with, with God in their midst, were to live distinct from the world, set apart from the world. They were to model worship of the one true God to the nations. They were to make him known in how they lived, in how they worshiped, in how they interacted with the nations around them. They were to make the Lord, the one true God, to make him known. And they failed. But Christ, the faithful and true Israelite, succeeded where they failed. He was faithful to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. He kept the law. He fulfilled every dot of it. And so through his faithfulness, 
through his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, those who repent and trust in him are made holy in him. And the church, his church, having been washed clean, having been purified, having been set apart by him, in him, for him, are to function like Israel was to function. The church models for the nations the worship of the one true God. The church calls the nations to worship the one true God. The church models for the nations what this looks like. The church holds him out as worthy of honor, of glory, of devotion. Now, like I said, Paul comes at this uh, from a little different angle. His is a warning. We have to see that. Take your eyes, look again at verse 15. He calls the Philippians children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Well, gee, Paul, that's really clever wording. Good job coming up with that. No. This wording comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Now, this is uh, part of Moses' song at the, at the end of his life. And in this song that he sings, he emphasizes how the Lord was faithful time and again to his people. He was faithful to his promises. He did all that he said that he would do, and yet they were faithless. Uh, you think it's verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32, where it says, But Jeshurun, when you grew fat, you turned. When the Lord has prospered you, when you were at peace, you turned. And they gave their worship to other gods. Moses even goes on to say, you gave your worship to demons who were not gods. They were faithless. And so because of this, in Deuteronomy 32.5, he says that they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, Paul, in his use of crooked and twisted generation, obviously he's not talking about the church. He is talking about uh, the world outside of the church. That's his, his application of it. Is this what he's saying? But his point is clear enough. He's saying, you Philippians are part of God's covenant people. Therefore, grumbling and disputes, it doesn't have any place among you. It wasn't found in the mouth of your Savior. Therefore, it ought not to be found in your mouths either. God in Christ has made you distinct from the crooked and twisted generation. We're set apart in Christ as shining lights in the world, meant to reveal His glory. So then, if grumbling and disputing is habitual for someone who bears the name of Christian, or for an entire congregation, it's cause for great concern. And therein lies Paul's warning in verse 15, and why we should read this as a warning you just need to flip his words around, and you'll see his point. You could read it as, If you do all things with grumbling and disputing, you're part of the crooked and twisted generation. You're not shining as lights in the world, just like faithless Israel. Paul continues to make this point in verse 16 where he says, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, we see that I may be proud, and that might have initially makes us go, do what now? What? Why? 
what, I thought pride was bad. We've been talking about humility. Well, we need to understand his pride in light of a couple of things that he's already said in this letter. He's already defined this for us if we just know where to look. First, he, he's told the Philippians that it is God who began the work in them, and he's told them that it is God who would bring it to completion. So is it very important for us. We must grasp this, that salvation, beginning to end, is a work of God. Of himself, he said that to live is Christ. His labors were about making Christ known. So then, his pride here isn't, hey, look at me, look what I did. That's not it. His pride is in God causing his labor to be effective. It's, hey, look at God. Look what God has done. And he says that he doesn't want that. So that on the day of Christ, his labors, his runnings, would not be in vain. That they wouldn't be revealed as fruitless. And just to clarify, when he mentions the day of Christ, what he's talking about is the glorious day when Christ returns. The dead are raised and they come before him. When we read in Revelation, the books are opened. And those whose names are found in the book of life enter into new heavens and new earth where God will dwell with us and we will see him face to face. But those whose names aren't found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It's on that day when all our works, all our words, even the careless ones, will be exposed, will be made known. And this is what Paul is referring to. He doesn't want, he is desperate to not have happen on that day for it to be proven that all his works, all his labors for the Philippians, pouring into them, investing in them, giving himself to them, had all been for naught. That God, in fact, had not been working in them at all. And so, what does Paul tell the Philippians to do? What's he say? Just white-knuckle it? Try real hard, cheer willpower, folks. Do it. No. He says in verse 16 that this comes from holding fast to the word of life. What's that, Paul? It's the gospel. We were dead in sin. We were enslaved to sin and rightly condemned to suffer the wrath of God eternally. But Christ willingly took the condemnation that you and I deserve in our place. But what did Jesus say about his death in the place of sinners? Just read through John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says, And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then he says, I give them eternal life. They will never, and they will never perish. He gives eternal life to all who repent and trust in his death for their sins. In him we are made alive to righteousness, and in him we have peace with God. We who were hostile towards him, he has reconciled us to himself in Christ. So I want to make one thing just abundantly clear this morning. 
it's particularly to any non-Christian friend who, who may be here, but this is true for any Christian as well. The last thing I want to convey to you this morning is a self-help message. Just try real hard and work that grumbling and disputing. Just work it right on out of your life. No, that's not how we merit favor with God. The favor that we have with God, that we're found pleasing to God, that we have peace with God, that we're reconciled to God, comes through Christ, the willing sacrifice, who all our sorrows bore in his death in our place for our sins. Come to Christ and receive life. This is the gospel message that we cling to. So then can't we see how grumbling and disputing stains our witness to that gospel? Just, just think about it. What is behind our grumbling? Is it not thanklessness and discontentment? It's as if we say, I know that I've been forgiven of my sins, but I'm really unhappy about fill in the blank. And what about disputing? Our disagreements are not greater than the hostility that we had with God that he overcame in Christ. But, but isn't that what grumbling and disputing suggest? I, I say with my mouth that I have no greater satisfaction than Christ. And then with the same mouth, I turn around and I grumble, suggesting that, you know what, actually there is something that would make me happier, something else. That if it was just fixed, if that was just taken care of, then I could really be happy. Or if I have peace in Christ, but I keep picking fights with people, is that the peace that Christ gives to his people? When that's habitual of us, when that is present in us, all that's saying to those who are outside of God's people is that the happiness and the peace that I say that I have, that I say that he gives to me, doesn't amount to a whole lot. And so, why would they come to him when there are other things that their hand could find that seems like it would give them just as much happiness and peace as we seem to have? So there's no place for grumbling and disputing in us. It's got to be given up. But we know how hard it is to give something up. There has to be something else some greater happiness, something that we realize is going to give us greater happiness. Christ is that. Christ and the life that he gives us is the superior source of happiness. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't just leave it at, just do it. Just do all things without grumbling and disputing. There is something that we replace grumbling and disputing with. And that's Paul's second instruction, his, his second imperative, which is, again, if you're of the note-taking persuasion, be glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. So verse 17, I think, gives us a little bit more definition. It helps kind of fill out what Paul means when he's talking about not having labored in vain, not having run in, in vain. Now, 
I'll say this. I, I think when we come to that verse and we read about his being poured out as a drink offering, that perhaps our initial like response, just first reading response to that, is to assume that this is a reference to his, his death, to him dying. And, and I will grant you that the only other place that I can, I can think of off the top of my head, the only other place that I know of that he uses that, which is in 2 Timothy, when he talks about being poured out, is actually a reference to the fact that he is about to die and, and he knows it. And so, if we're reading it that way, if we're reading his being poured out as a drink offering, then we're probably going to turn around and read where he talks about the Philippians' sacrificial offering of their faith as the Philippians themselves suffering for Christ. And again, I will grant that, that potentially Paul does have those things in mind, that that's, that that's somewhere in, in his mind. We know that he did mention suffering uh, back just a couple of verses before in uh, chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. But having said that, I don't think that that's the best way to read it. First, and we've seen this already, but we know that Paul doesn't believe that his death is imminent. He doesn't think that he's about to die. In chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, he has said that he... Uh, anticipates and, is, and knows that he is going to remain alive to come visit the Philippians again. Well, then we're going to turn around and see in the passage that Michael will preach from next week in verse 24 that he trusts that the Lord is going to bring, them, uh, bring him to them soon. Second, the text immediately around this passage, it doesn't really talk about suffering. It doesn't really have anything to do with suffering. So, then that probably leaves us asking the question, if this doesn't have anything to do with his death, if this doesn't have anything to do with their suffering, uh, then, then what is it? What's in view? Well, look again at the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. He In 16, I don't want my running or my labors to have been in vain. He then says, even if I am to be poured out. He's using this imagery to emphasize what he has just said about his labors in Christ. You might think of it like someone who is trying to complete a project of any kind uh, that's really difficult, that's giving them fits. And, and we're all going to have been this person, I'm, I'm sure. You're struggling through it, and at some point, you know, maybe you felt defeated, but you get that second wind, we're going to do this, and you say something to the effect of, I am going to get this done, even if it kills me. Will it actually kill you? No, we're using hyperbole, right? We're, we're exaggerating. What we're just emphasizing is that we're willing to do whatever it takes, and we're going to do whatever it takes in order to, to see that project through. I think it's best to read, read it as, as Paul saying something like that here. He's expressing his willingness to be spent in service to the Philippians. His goal is for his labors to have not been in vain, to their happy end, and to the glory of Christ. His running is for the increasing of their faith and faithfulness to the Lord. And he is willing to give and to give and to give of himself to see that that comes to fruition. And so that's why he's using the drink offering imagery here. Now, a drink offering was uh, an offering that was either poured on or to the side of whatever the primary offering was. So you might have a wave offering, a grain offering, a burnt offering that's maybe primary, and then you have the drink offering that is being poured out next to it, that's being poured out on top of it, and its purpose was to serve as a, as a pleasing aroma 
uh, to the Lord. So this drink offering, I think we could see it as an accompaniment, something that, sir, that um, um, supported and enhanced the, the other offering that it was going along with. Well, Paul is expressing here that he's willing to be that for them, to give and give and give of himself for the building up of faith in them. And then look what, what Paul says after this. Even if I am to be poured out, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. His response to being spent for their good is not grumbling. If his giving and giving and giving of himself resulted in a mature faith and service in and from them to the Lord that exceeded even his own, he would be glad and rejoice. He would rejoice with them in their progress in the faith, even at great cost to himself. And so the, the idea here is willingness to be inconvenienced or uncomfortable for the sake of seeing others mature in Christ and to bear witness to the goodness of Christ. It's a working out of the humility that Paul mentioned back in verses 3 and 4. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. But not unhappily or begrudgingly. It's doing so happily. I gladly sacrifice my interests, my preferences, because it makes me happy to see others growing in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so to that end, Paul instructs the Philippians, saying in verse 18, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so now look at how Paul has, has structured this text. Starts with one imperative in verse 14, don't grumble and dispute. He ends it with another, which is the opposite of the first, be glad and rejoice. What he's doing is urging the Philippians to an attitude shift. It's not just about giving up grumbling. It's about replacing grumbling and disputing with attitudes that exemplify living in a manner worthy of the gospel. This shift is necessary if the people of God will truly shine as lights in the world. Those whose attitudes are characterized by grumbling and disputing just blend in with the crooked and twisted generation. But those who have Christ producing in them gladness and rejoicing, gladness and rejoicing, which is driving out grumbling and disputing, they shine. And that's what's at the heart of Paul's plea here. And it's why he's happy to be poured out, giving and giving and giving of himself to see faith grown and matured in the Philippians. Because that's what he wants them to be. He wants them to be characterized by attitudes that faithfully represent Christ in the world. And this falls right in line with all of the things that he's been urging them towards to this point. Unity, humility, radical self-denial. His appeal to them is to be glad and rejoice in all things that you may bear witness 
to the goodness of God in Christ in the midst of a dark and perishing world. That appeal reaches all the way to us as well. We who are in Christ have been set apart as children of God without blemish in the midst of our own crooked and twisted generation. So what does this text mean for you? How does it apply to your life? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Be glad and rejoice. When our own attitudes are are characterized by gladness and rejoicing, we will grow in willingness. We will be growing in willingness to be spent for the building up of faith in others. This shows up as being more charitable, patient, kind toward others. I'm willing to lay aside my own preferences, even my own comfort, so as to see others built up in Christ. And so I want you to think back to some of those things I mentioned at the outset here. Consider how gladness and rejoicing might be displayed within our faith family. Yes, we do have kids in the worship service. And yes, kids be kids. They make noise. And we could be frustrated by that. But we could rejoice that parents are seeking to disciple their kids. They're taking this seriously. Serving in the church. It's an opportunity for us to be glad that there are others who are now sitting under the teaching of the Word. Or it could even mean rejoicing that through the place where I serve, I have an opportunity to bring someone alongside me and teach them and model for them what it looks like to serve God by serving His people. People hold different doctrinal opinions than you. We have Calvinists, we have Arminians. We have premillennial, dispensational, we have amillennial. I don't know that we have any postmillennial, but you might. It's an option. Can we, and we have the option in Christ, despite our different opinions on these things, to rejoice at the desires of others to seek to know and apply the Scriptures to their lives? But we should also think about how these attitudes could be displayed out in the community or at home. You have frustrations at work. Rejoice that you have a job. But it's not just that. There's an opportunity. Is there nothing good in your boss? Is there nothing good in your coworker? I'm sure there is. There's gladness then at those good traits, whether it's hard work or acts of kindness or something else. Your neighbors. So rejoicing that God has given you neighbors that you're able to get to know. Gladness when you're able to identify anything, no matter how small, a common ground that you share with them upon which you might build a relationship. Political opinions. Gladness that you are able to have conversation with people. A Christ-centered life bears faithful witness to the gospel. Gladness and rejoicing are necessary to that. This means finding something good, something to rejoice in, in whatever situation we find ourselves. In some cases, it may be really easy. It may be plainly obvious to you where there is gladness, where there is rejoicing. In others, it may be very faint. 
it may not be as readily apparent. But we who have been forgiven so much, we've got to look for it and hold on to it. And what that means is then giving and giving and giving of ourselves out of a desire to seek the eternal good of others. I lay aside my preferences. I lay aside my comforts. I want to see Christ exalted. Because my true and lasting happiness is found in Him. So give up grumbling and disputes. Be glad and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for people who lead us in singing of your word. Thank you for prayers and opportunities to be here with your people to worship you. Thank you for inviting us in to worship. Thank you for giving us a time and space and place to meet to worship you. And Lord God, I, I pray that through any of the means of grace that you've given to us this morning, your word, your people, prayer, singing, through any one element of it or all of it, grow us in love for you, in faith in you, in trust in you, and delight in you to your glory. Amen.